0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit NICUconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal.
1: This is The Incubator. Hello everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator podcast. It is m- Sunday. We're doing Journal Club and um, we have a lot of exciting articles to go over with you guys. Daphne, how are you?
0: I'm doing really, really well, buddy. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. Yeah. I'm doing good. Uh, lots of exciting articles to present today. There's lots of things happening. Um, yeah, no, things are busy for us on every front, which is which is good. We're gonna make some announcements, I guess. But I guess we can say that the incubator is gonna be like a little bit going on a on a tour. We're gonna mm-hmm. be uh, we're gonna be going around the country a little bit. So if uh, you are in these areas and you want to come say hi, then please feel free. I think we'll be at Nationwide Children's for Grand Rounds on March twenty seventh, mm-hmm. and then. After that, we, uh, we will head to CHOP, to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I think that is in April. And if I'm not mistaken, this is right before PAS, right? So
0: That's correct.
1: Hold on. So I'm pulling up my, my calendar here.
0: It's actually May 2nd. We'll be at CHOP.
1: That's exactly right. May second at at uh, at chop, and then we'll follow that with our presence at PAS, and then after that there may be some other things. But for now, I think the next, and then after that we'll be in uh, in Chicago in September for the District Six conference, and um, and after that Delphi in Fort Lauderdale. So uh, lots of exciting things. Um, I must say that every time I'm not, I don't feel like we are celebrities that people need to come and take pictures with us. However, I must say that every time we meet with people, there's an exchange of ideas that help move the incubator forward. And that's what I'm excited about. So um, I think many people have ideas, but there's a little bit of a of a, an activation energy that where they don't, just, they don't just send us the email and they just think about it. And then they see us and they're like, hey, have you thought about mm-hmm. doing this? And I must say that every time we've met with people in person, whether it was at CHNC at the next symposium, other places, great stuff has come out of our conversations so yeah just just let's chat let's, come uh, find us yeah, that's exactly right that's right that's exactly right all right so this this week we um we have journal club we have an eb neo segment as well and um yeah let's get started i wanted to change things up for journal club a little bit i wanted to maybe talk a little bit about like the the brief mentions in the beginning because i feel like sometimes they get buried inside the episode and um there's uh, two articles that I really thought people might be interested to look at. The first one is is the one published in the Journal of Perinatology, and it's and I was curious to get your thoughts on that because it says, the title is Therapeutic Hypothermia for Preterm Infants, 34 to 35 Weeks of Gestation with Neonatal Encephalopathy. I must say that the author list is sort of what prompted me to read this. The who's um, yeah, so first author is Sehun Kim, who I am not familiar with, but obviously also on this paper is uh, Terry Ender and uh, Mohammed El Deeb, both very accomplished um, physicians in this space. And what they were trying to look at is what about therapeutic hypothermia for babies who are born at that 34, 35 weeks of gestation? And now automatically I'm thinking, like, oh my God, that's it. The needle keeps moving backwards and we're going to try. And I was surprised to hear that at um, their center, they, they do. Offer cooling for babies in this gestational age, in gestational age range, because I initially looked at the methodology and it's retrospective. So I'm like, wait, one second. Like, so so they were doing it. And it's like, yeah, they they were they were doing that. And um, some of them of the babies were also like having mild encephalopathy. So really what they wanted to do was like, what are the short-term outcomes and safety of cooling in babies that are 34 and 35 weeks. They're not really looking at long-term outcomes, and they just want to know, like, is it safe? There were previous studies that had shown that as as you try to cool smaller babies or more immature babies, it could become unsafe. And this was a matched retrospective cohort study of 20 preterm infants that were uh, con- matched to 40 infants born at 36 weeks or or more between 2015 and 2021. And what they found was uh, those babies at 34, 35 weeks who received therapeutic hypothermia, their short-term outcomes were comparable to the ones that were more full-term regarding seizures, IVH, blood transfusion, subcutaneous fat necrosis, brain injury, on the magnetic resonance imaging and mortality, and that these findings were consistent when short-term outcomes were adjusted for birth weight. And so the conclusion is that it's feasible and safe, which obviously begs the question, are we going to start cooling now 34 weekers? To, to their credit, they're not making the case that because of what they're publishing here, they're saying, ooh, there's a benefit, we should do it. They're just saying it's not unsafe. So maybe the next step would be, should we look at this in a more rigorous manner in terms of looking at outcomes on a larger sample long term long term outcomes and so on and so forth so i don't want to m- say that the authors are being uh careless with their recommendations however it does it's like the, the the therapeutic creep is, is definitely happening and and so i'm just curious what you what you think about that
0: well i mean that's been a major point of discussion right like why 35 weeks you know and can we go lower? Can we go younger? And also, uh, you know, there's this group of babies who are mature but small, right? Or immature but big. You know, so what happens to those babies when they fall on either side of the line? So, which is
1: a question I had, w- which was, how did they determine the gestational age? Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really, when I read the paper the first time around, I didn't, I didn't ask myself this question. When I went back to look at it, I couldn't find uh, if this was mentioned or not. But obviously becomes a question: How do you yeah. assess the maturity of the baby?
0: Yeah, and then you wonder in a decade, like how low do we go? Right? We'll just have to see. Maybe not a decade, given how long it takes us to translate science right now. But <laughs> yeah, but um, what that will look like in the future? Yeah. Absolutely. Very interesting.
1: Another interesting paper I found was something that actually made the rounds on Twitter. It was in the Archives of Disease in Childhood, and it's called Randomized Study of a New Inline Respiratory Function Monitor, the Juno, to Improve Mask, Seal, and Delivered Ventilation with Neonatal Mannequins. First author is Mark Brian Tracy that's coming out of uh, Australia. Um, So- it's it's a cool tech actually. I, I don't think there's much for us to even take home, but basically it's like a little adapter, and it looks like um, it's like a rectangular LCD screen that you attach to your Neopuff, and it's a, a device that I can have some specification. It weighs eighty five grams. It's running on battery, and it gives feedback to the provider giving ventilation in various ways but it's and it's it's not very technical actually because the way they're doing it is by showing you ranges so the the device will tell you if you have a mask leak and it will basically do it in the traffic light format. So sorry, if you have 0 to 29%, it will flash green. If you have between 30 and 60, it will flash orange. And if you have 60% or more of leak, then it will flash red. So you're like, oh, I have to you have to try to aim to get back into the green. Then it will also give you some feedback about uh title volume with some uh, baby icons between whether you're giving between two and a half to ten mls, 10 to 25, 25 to 50. And and it gives you all these feedback and you're able to theoretically. Provide much more effective ventilation. So they did this study. Um, this is the, the device. I don't think is available. I think they said pre market. So I think it's just a prototype. However, so they did this on mannequins. So they didn't test it on on babies. And what they showed was that when they they gave this to forty nine experienced neonatal staff, they made them do some ventilation. And then what they did is that they did sort of uh, blinding with the same group. So. The providers were initially giving ventilations and the LCD screen was covered. And then they uncovered and saw how was the difference. So same provider, same uh, setting, just whether they had access to this, uh, to this screen. And, uh, what they found was obviously the, the, they mentioned the number of ventilation that was inflations that were given like 15,000 something. And they said that there were significant reductions in all groups in the number of inflations out of target range. So, um, when they were using the self inflating bag or the TP resuscitator. So, um, the with the, um, Self-inflating bag, the the inflation's out of range went down from twenty two percent to six percent. For the TPS, it went down from seven to four percent. That was in the preterm mannequin and in the term mannequin with the self-inflating bag, it went down from fifty five percent to thirty seven percent, and with the TPS from sixty seven to sixty three percent. uh The percentage of mask leak inflation above sixty percent was also reduced from twenty percent to seven in the self-inflating bag, twenty three to seven in the TPS, and in the term mannequin. Eight to three percent in the term mannequin and twenty-three to six percent in the TPS resuscitator. So I would say check it out. We'll link the article. I must say the tech looks cool. Um, and and I have a feeling that this this has been tested. Uh, this idea of having something that can give you some feedback mm-hmm. as you're giving ventilation has been tested, and and we know helps deliver more accurate. So I feel like something is coming, but this might be it. It's small if it's cheap enough. This is something that might. Uh, I mean, I think some... this
0: is hugely important, right? Mm-hmm. Like those, you know, whether you have a neo in house or whether you have a neo just around the corner, a few minutes. Those those first few breaths can set the whole. I mean, this is with a mannequin, right? But I mean, theoretically, if this can, if we can get this into delivery rooms. Or something like this into delivery rooms. Those first few breaths are basically the difference between like a downward spiral or a recovery of a a baby, you know? And if you didn't say what level the professionals were who were were in this study.
1: They were quite experienced.
0: And even the experienced clinicians had a significant improvement. So, I mean, this is, I think this is amazing. I think it's going to be super valuable for training. I think it's going to be super valuable when the first responder is not a Neonatologist, or maybe even a pediatrician, um, or in these communities where you know helping babies breathe, where all they have is PPV, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it will potentially be life saving in some of yeah.
1: those. it's very humbling. I, I want to give a shout out to uh, a physician I worked with, Deepak Jain. I may have mentioned this on the podcast where he he did something. He did he was conducting a similar study where we had some uh, tidal volume feedback and we practice in our pulmonary lab in fellowship and. You think you're pretty good, especially as a fellow. You're like, oh, I I do, I give good. And then you look at the feedback you're getting and you're like, oh, man, (laughs) this is terrible. Uh, It's a very humbling Humbling. experience.
0: Very humbling experience. But I think this is cool. I think that, I mean, this is where the innovation is, right? Small changes. This is a simple system, you know, no, no, no shade. This is, I didn't think of it, but, you know, but could drastically improve.
1: Yeah, and I think the idea, I think where it's smart is that number one, LCD screens today are cheap. People, these are made uh, routinely. But the idea of saying, hey, we're going to give you a range really s- removes the pressure from the company to give you an exact number. You know what I'm saying? And say, ooh, your number is actually within a 10%. Like, it doesn't matter. You're getting like, if you're within that big fat range, you'll you'll know. But at least you won't be so far off. So, so far off, yeah. yeah.
0: No, yeah. And I mean, it's, uh, in terms of ease of use, red light green light yellow light that's exactly right
1: all right Uh,
0: okay my turn
1: sure go ahead
0: no you're not sure
1: no 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 these were my these were my uh my short uh my short uh articles and uh and then i have some i've I've looked into more depth so um but i've spoken for now 12 minutes so you go
0: okay well, since you started off with a with an HIE cooling paper, um, I'm I will do the same. Um, this was a esophageal versus rectal temperature monitoring during whole body therapeutic hypothermia for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy association with short and long term outcomes. Uh, the lead author, uh, Tai Wei Wu, and this is in the Journal of Pediatrics. So, it's basically from the heel trial group. They conducted mm-hmm. a secondary analysis of, again, the multi-center high-dose erythropoietin for asphyxia and encephalopathy, or HEAL trial. Um, of course, all infants in that study had moderate or severe HIE and were treated with whole-body uh, therapeutic hypothermia. As a reminder, um, this was studying uh, the impact of high-dose erythropoietin uh, as an adjunct. So getting cooling might erythropoietin improve outcomes and unfortunately what it what it found uh was that uh the incidence of death or neurodevelopmental impairment didn't differ significantly between the groups however there were more serious adverse events um in the erythropoietin group just as a reminder mm mm-hmm. And the occlusion, uh, criteria for this sub-analysis were pretty much the same as for the HEAL trial and most other cooling trials. Gestational age, greater than 36 weeks, presence of perinatal depression, confirmation of moderate to severe encephalopathy. And the exclusion criteria, like most other studies, less than 1800 grams, head circumference that was too small, uh, genetic or congenital anomalies, um, and, and this imminent mortality. So the primary outcome, much like the HEAL trial, was death or neurodevelopmental impairment at the 22 to 36 months of age. They call that the two two years. Um, And then they did secondary outcomes, seizures, MRI brain injury using both an additive global injury score and um, MR spectroscopy markers of injury. But they also looked at complications of hypothermia um, because they were studying the temperature probes. All children surviving until 22 to 26 months follow-up were assessed by uh, the GMFCS, the Modified Gross Mortar Function Classification System, um, to look at the motor impairment, um, they look at CP status, and they define neurodevelopmental impairment as any of the following, cerebral palsy diagnosed by a neurologic exam, a modified GMFCS level of one or greater, or <laughs> one or equal to, greater or equal to one, uh, indicating the inability to take 10 steps independently or a cognitive score of less than 90 on the Bailey. They also did a four-level outcome scale in decreasing order of severity. I won't belable the points. I think I'll just get into the results. So of the 500 infants enrolled in the HEAL trial, 59% were cooled with esophageal temperature monitoring, that's the E group, and 206 or 41% were cooled via rectal temperature monitoring. You know, it's interesting, as for the type of the cooling devices, there was a Whole plethora of uh, devices used. The blank control was the predominant, uh, used 82%, the Ticotherm, 24%, critical 24%, and the Arctic Sun 12% at the study sites, uh, respectively. But uh, while most study sites use blank control, six study sites even used more than one device at the same site. And so this is interesting. Yeah,
1: that's just a problem. To talk that's a problem, about. sounds to <laughs> yeah.
0: um, Because in uh, we haven't had a lot of there have been some head to head trials of the cooling devices but um in, in in my i'll just say my experience they don't all cool the same way and they do not uh, they have a, uh, a they have a different ranges in in how how uh, how close they can keep to target temperature for okay. companies
1: uh, who want to seek Daphne's yeah. endorsement of their product please reach out to me i'm her i'm her manager
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh anyways Overall, there were no significant differences in the maternal and neonatal characteristics um, before the cooling, right? So proportion of subjects who received chest compressions, no difference. Uh, Proportion of subjects who received epinephrine during initial recitation, there was no significant differences in the severity of encephalopathy. Oh my gosh, I'm really slurring my words this morning. The severity of encephalopathy, there's no difference um, in how much erythropoietin was uh, received between the groups uh, or time to target temperature between the two groups. However, um, between the two groups, as a baseline characteristic, there was a higher incidence of intubation during resuscitation in the esophageal monitoring group, 75.5% versus the rectal monitoring group, 61.2%.
1: Say that again. More intubation at what point? Uh,
0: I mean, during resuscitation in the babies who ended up getting esophageal monitoring.
1: Fine, 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 fine. Okay, Because
0: those are the two groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Okay. So the results, the frequency of the primary outcome of death or neurodevelopmental impairment was similar in the two groups, 49% versus 54% with an odds ratio of 1.05. And the risk of death or neurodevelopmental impairment remained similar in the two groups after adjusting for potential confounders. An adjusted odd ratio of 1.26 for the rectal group compared with the reference esophageal group. In addition, secondary outcomes such as clinical or electrographic seizures, the mean MRI injury score, and uh, the MR spectroscopy measures also did not differ significantly between the two groups. However, infants in the rectal group had a lower rate of overcooling than those in the esophageal group, 44% versus 58%, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.52. And the group difference in overall cooling rates interestingly it was only present during the first day of therapeutic hypothermia but i actually think that's an important point there was also there was a lower rate of hypotension requiring intervention in the rectal group compared with the esophageal group but this was not statistically significant and on multivariate analysis the rectal group the rectal monitoring group had significantly lower odds of hypotension requiring intervention an adjusted odds ratio of 0.57, and any cardiovascular complication, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.63. There are no significant group differences in the other adverse events such as inotropic agent use, cardiac function compromise, duration of mechanical ventilation support, the use of nitric, uh, incidence of coagulopathy, or fat necrosis. So these are other Complications, obviously, of overcooling. So, I mean, I I thought this was interesting. Uh, no earth-shattering findings, but as we're you know discussing the importance of fine-tuning our cooling, you know, protocols and the way we do it, um, is keeping temperature in better therapeutic range. Um, more, how important is it? I think is is interesting, so it looked like uh, again the the rectal monitoring group had lower rates of overcooling than those in the esophageal group. I think this makes sense, um, but it's interesting to see it. No major changes in the quote unquote long term outcomes, though.
1: Yeah, do you think that's going to spark um, a change in in uh, what people favor for cooling?
0: Uh, I think it might i think mm. it might i also
1: everybody's always reluctant to to shove the probe down the, the baby's butt and and uh <laughs> yeah and it, it, i mean i'm sorry i'm sorry to say like we we do uh esophageal stuff all the time like we put in og ng we're much more comfortable with that it's just as invasive but um yeah
0: yeah i also think it will depend on what the nurses in your unit prefer, that's <laughs> because true. I think that's a huge, uh, a huge barrier to overcome. I think,
1: I mean, that's, that's a great point you're making just because we tend to forget, like, as you said, there are multiple devices and, and, and the most important thing is that your team is comfortable with whatever Mm -hmm. devices you, because that's the worst case scenario where you have a device and you don't use it properly. And God forbid you're just, uh, Oh, the baby didn't get cooled uh, appropriately or, or something along those lines. So I agree with you, whatever, whatever people are comfortable with is what is going to matter most. All right, I have time for one more. This is this is before we we before we take a quick break and bring in the Neo uh, team. So there is this um, paper in JAMA called "Neurodevelopmental Outcome of Extremely Preterm Infants Fed Donor Milk or Preterm Infant Formula." Um, it's a big trial. Um, it's the milk trial done by the NICHD. Um, so it really uh, something that uh, was was worth reviewing, and uh, we'll see how interesting it is. That uh, it's a it's a, probably a a testament to um, how our field has changed also over the years. So uh, the question they were asking was: Does nutrient fortified pasteurized donor milk improve neurodevelopmental outcome at twenty two to twenty six months corrected age, corrected age compared to preterm infant formula? In extremely preterm infants receiving minimal maternal milk so we'll, we'll go into the you, you, you like me you'll have a lot of questions and we'll answer those in the methodology it's a double blind randomized clinical trial that's done at the 15 centers uh, within the NICHD neonatal research network and they enrolled babies since 2012 until 2019 and we'll talk about why This took this long to to do. The follow-up visits were done at 22 to 26 months. And the eligibility criteria were that you had to be less than 29 weeks or have a birth weight less than 1,000 grams. You uh, had to be less than seven days of age. And then you had to follow and uh, you have to meet some of these eligibility criteria. Number one, the infants birthing parents never initiated lactation. Because obviously, you don't want to prevent a mother from using their own milk for this study. Lactation was initiated. However, the mother ceased to express milk prior to 21 days. And then during that time, they were able to enroll uh, if the mother had stopped producing and said, I'm, I'm done. The milk, Or last, last point, that the milk supply was really minimal and that they were going to have to need to be supplemented anyway from day 7 to day 21. The exclusion criteria are chromosomal anomaly, um, all sorts of stuff, prior neck, so on. I don't need to go into that. These are very straightforward. So what was the intervention? So you had infants that were in the no maternal milk group that uh, were s- receiving a study diet for all feeding from randomization to hospital discharge, death, or 120 days. And then we had babies that were in the minimal maternal milk group, which received any minimal amount of maternal milk that was available, and in the study diet, which was the preterm formula f- until uh, the same uh, endpoints. The primary outcomes were the cognitive score on the Bailey um, at 22 to 26 months the study was designed to be pragmatic. So that's very important. What, what did they do? They only controlled the base diet. So they only said, all right, this baby is going to get preterm formula or donor milk. Okay. When was the feeding initiated? How did you fortify the, the feeding? How did you advance the feed? All that stuff was left to the clinician. Okay. So that was not uh, regulated which is a very critical point. And that's the kind of stuff that you may skim over during the the methods, but it will have a huge implications when it comes to the results. The donor milk recipes were required to provide uh, 2.8 to 3 grams of protein. And they assumed that the donor milk would provide about 0.8 to 0.9 grams per deciliter of protein, but they did not measure the content of the donor milk. They had a bunch of secondary outcome. They looked at the individual scores on the belly. They looked at moderate or severe uh, cerebral palsy and, um, they had a category for moderate to severe or severe no impairment. So, what were the results looking like? So, they had 483, 483, uh, infants were randomized, 239 in the donor milk group, 244 in the preterm formula group. The median gestational age was 26 weeks, the median birth weight 840 grams. 88% of the survivors were assessed at the follow-up at 22 to 26 months. And in that cohort of uh, 483, 114 babies never received maternal milk and 370 received minimal maternal milk. Now, what's interesting is that the enrollment had to be stopped for this trial uh, due to declining enrollment, loss of equipoise among participating centers, and the increasing use of donor milk in the Neonatal Research Network over time. So it's so sad that...
2: Wow,
0: very
3: uh, interesting.
1: I know, right? That as they were doing this trial, like the, the field shifted and, and people were like, well, we don't really want to do this study anymore. Uh, so... It's interesting to see that's that's to me is a testament to these researchers who do this work and who are putting themselves out there when it comes to subjecting their their question to the test of time and the the test of trends and changes and new evidence coming out. So what was interesting to. Uh, three outcomes that I want to go over the growth the weight gain was slower in the donor milk group compared to the preterm formula group at the end of the study the mean weight in the donor milk group was 143 grams lower than the preterm formula group length gain and head circumference growth did not differ between the groups during the study so growth tend to favor did tend to favor uh, the preterm formula group however remember what we said like fortification all that stuff was not controlled so you could They talk about this in their discussion. Could this be that all these other practices did have uh, an influence? It's very possible. The primary outcome, 369 infants went through follow-up and the adjusted Bailey score uh, was 80.7 in the donor milk group, 81.1 in the preterm formula group, no significant difference. I mean, they're pretty much the same. The B, the Bailey motor and language scores did not significantly differ between the groups as well. And among the infants with Bailey cognitive score of less than 70, so if you only look at the ones that are really, some people would say a Bailey score of less than 70 is really what would be considered impairment. They did this for both less than 70 and less than 80. Still, when you compare these babies who have these scores, there's no difference between the groups. The prevalence and severity of neurodevelopmental impairment did not significantly differ between the groups. And then when they said this, maybe it's the maternal milk that they received. So they actually isolated the 114 infants that never got maternal milk. So like, take, let's take these kids this kids out because in prior studies, there's always the maternal milk that could potentially confound the issue where you say, oh, they got some maternal milk. Maybe that's why their cognitive outcome are better. Well, the cognitive score for these babies that never got milk was 80.2 in the donor milk group and 80.9 in the preterm formula group. So identical. So what does that mean? Well, the the thing that's, not surprising, which probably explains why the, the trial lost some momentum, is that the mortality and in-hospital in in, in in hospital morbidity outcomes are what we have known now for some time, is that the outcome of death prior to hospital discharge occurred 10% of the donor male group versus 7.4% in the preterm formula group. That was not statistically significant. The outcome of death prior to follow-up was 13% versus 11%, not significantly different. However, necrotizing enterocolitis. 4.2% in the donor milk group compared to 9% in the preterm formula group. So as we have already known, this is not new information. They do acknowledge that in the results. They said we 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 also we now know that the main benefit of donor milk in this preterm population is reduction in incidence of neck. So yeah, so given the conclusion is that given the observed benefit of maternal milk, this randomized clinical trial tested the hypothesis that the use of donor milk compared with formula and extra preterm infant who received no or minimal maternal milk during hospitalization would result in a better outcome, and they
0: found no significant difference well, I mean, not not getting neck is a a big it's deep, huge, right? They, I mean a- we can't just say like, no, this—it's it's the same. It's—it's it's, it's still not the same. It's not the same. Now, the The big deal is—is is it the same as mother's own milk? No, it's not. None of that thing is the same as mother's own milk. So,
1: so to to their credit, their their um their primary outcome what they what they were originally looking for was the long term outcomes. They then included NEC to show that yeah. it is consistent with other evidence that donor milk should be preferred specifically for this outcome. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're a parent. Who cares if your baby is a bit tinier, but is neck-free? They do mention all that in the discussion. So it's a huge result. And even though they were not really powered or looking for neck specifically, because it is consistent with the uh, the rest of the evidence, sort of seems to reinforce the need and the use for donor breast milk.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting. There's no difference in mortality. But babies who have neck are more likely to die than babies who don't have neck, right? Uh, well, so... I'll talk
1: about that in a little bit then. If you, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean the big the big deal is we have to change our whole our whole society so that birthing parents breast milk providing parents can have the opportunity to provide breast milk that's how we really will change outcomes but not having neck i think is still a big deal still huge big deal.
1: and especially when you look at it's not like 2% it's like double Double yeah. the incidence of
0: You know, I think it's good that we're studying it, right? We're investing a lot in, in trying to push donor milk, but I wouldn't say it's for not. I mean, I, again, uh, I think it's what we have. We're
1: going to take um, a quick break. We're going to let the Ibinio team come and talk to us about uh, their article of the month. And then I'll we'll come back and I'll answer some of the questions people are having about this particular period, because I found another article in The Lancet that sort of talks about what we're... Aiming at and um, I think it'll be interesting to follow up with that. So um, yeah, stay right here and we'll be right back.
2: The article of the month commentary brought to you by the evidence-based neonatology team. Make sure to follow eb Neo on Twitter at ebneo or on the web at ebneo.org.
1: Okay, so today we are joined by the EB Neo team. Uh, with uh, We're with uh, Dr. Kristen Ferguson, Dr. David Tingay, and Dr. Lucy Loft from Australia. Thank you guys for making it on the show today. Thanks, Ben. Uh, we wanted to start with Lucy because we're talking about the the, the two-year outcomes of um, the uh, Optimist Day trial. But I think for many of us, it's like, well, the Optimist trial, what was that again? Maybe someone can, can jog our memory and tell us what the Optimist a trial was and what it was aiming to to show and what what did it show. Lucy, do you want to take this?
3: Sure. Thanks very much, Ben. So the Optimus trial was an internationally blinded and randomized controlled trial that was run between uh, December 2011 and March 2020, which involved 33 tertiary NICUs over 11 countries. And they were comparing Minimally invasive surfactant therapy or MIST to a sham treatment, which consisted of a transient repositioning of the infant but with no instrumentation of the airway. And they looked at uh, 485 preterm infants uh, with a gestational age between 25 and 0 and 28 and 6 weeks on CPAP that were needing 30% oxygen or greater within six hours of birth. And they randomized in that 241 babies to the MIST group and 244 to the SHAM treatment group. And they looked at their composite outcome of death or physiological BPD at 36 weeks postmenstrual age in that. And their primary outcome showed that it was not statistically significant between the MIST and the SHAM treatment for the composite outcome there, but they did have some um, secondary outcomes which were statistically significant from that trial. In particular, the MIST treatment, they showed decreased uh, BPD or bronchopulmonary dysplasia in the survivors as well as a decreased rate of intubation within 72 hours of birth as the main outcomes there um, and that's led on to then the uh, follow-up trial for this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some some impressive results. Obviously, forty about forty four percent of the cohort in the mist group that developed uh, the the primary outcome of uh, death or BPD versus forty nine point six percent in the control treatment. Obviously, that was not statistically significant. And when when they looked. At the the individual components of that primary outcome, meaning death prior to thirty six weeks, that too was not really statistically significant. But they did find that for their f- definition of uh, BPD, there might have been a bit more um, a bit more BPD in the group that was in the control arm, forty five percent versus thirty seven percent, and that was. So, positive significant p-value um and then there's all these other secondary outcomes as as well as you mentioned uh this was published a couple years ago i mean i forget now maybe 2022 i don't remember however but uh today we're reviewing the two-year outcomes of uh that cohort so maybe kristen do you want to tell us a little bit uh what that paper uh showed it was published in jama and uh we'll obviously link all that in the in the show notes but yeah tell us a little bit what what that Those outcomes look like?
2: Yeah, for sure, Ben. Um, So, the paper that we've done the commentary on is essentially looking at the two year outcomes of the Optimus trial. Um, So, obviously, as Lucy summarised the trial, the main outcome for this paper was the composite outcome um, assessed at two years corrected age of death or moderate um, to severe neurodevelopmental disability. And I guess the important thing there is how they've defined um, moderate to severe um, neurodevelopmental disability, which was um, either moderate to severe cognitive or language impairment, um, cerebral palsy, which had an equivalent um, GMFCS rating of two or greater, visual impairment or hearing impairment. And the outcome for that was that there was no statistically significant difference in death or moderate severe neurodevelopmental disability at two years, um, with 36% in the MIST group versus uh, 36 in the SHAM group, so the same. I think what 's um, interesting is some of their secondary analysis, where they looked at the composite um, components, so death or or death and moderate to severe neurodevelopmental disability, and neither of the components um, had any statistically significant differences. Um, where I find the interesting thing is the two-year respiratory health outcome, um, which is sort of somewhat of a novel thing that I think in the neonatal trials, we don't often see it. Um, so, they looked at a number of markers of respiratory health. Um, so, they included overnight hospitalizations for any illnesses or respiratory illnesses specifically, um, and then a number of parent report respiratory outcomes. Um, so, parent report of wheeze or difficulty breathing, use of any bronchodilator therapy, a parent report of physician diagnosis of asthma, um, which I think is an interesting one that we can talk about later. So, ultimately, they did find some statistically significant differences in these um, secondary respiratory outcomes, um, particularly in hospitalizations for any illnesses, but also for respiratory illnesses. And I think, interestingly, the rates of parent-reported wheeze or difficulty breathing at two years was actually higher than the BPD diagnosis in the original trial. So in the missed group, forty, uh, essentially 41% were reported to have ways or difficulty breathing versus 54% in the sham or control group.
1: I think one of the interesting things that we need to clarify, obviously, is because as Lucy mentioned, the initial trial looked at two groups that one received surfactant, the other one received a sham treatment. And I think you may quickly leap to say, well, obviously, if you're looking at uh, a group that didn't receive surfactant, they're going to do worse from a respiratory standpoint. But there was a, a time point where th- that was being looked at when it came to the OPTIMIST-A trial. And even in the control group, these babies also received some surfactant down the road. So it's not like we withheld surfactant from the control group. And I think that could sometimes be lost because of the way the groups were randomized. So I think it's important to know that if you go back to the original trial, you'll see that um, the average dose of surfactant each group received was one. So they they all did eventually get surfactant, except the the intervention group got surfactant in that specific manner uh, this early on. I think the what was the time again of how early these, these kids got I Had like two three hours if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah okay so um david uh, we're gonna bring you into the discussion and and maybe you can share with us what are your collective thoughts on this paper and um what uh some of the things that you guys are bringing up in your eb neo commentary this month
4: yeah thanks ben i, I think first it's just to reiterate the point you made that this isn't a trial of exclusivity of surfactant therapy. It's a trial of early, less invasive surfactant therapy. I I prefer the term less invasive rather minimally invasive because the baby still had a laryngoscope placed in the mouth and a small uh, plastic device through the vocal cords. But that's my own personal uh, uh, issues.
1: I don't think that's your own personal. There was this paper in in JAMA-PIDS that came out recently that we uh, reviewed where they looked at oropharyngeal administration of surfactant. Precisely to address this issue where they say even if you're doing minimally invasive you're still doing laryngoscopy so technically how little how less invasive truly is it so uh, you're not you're not alone
4: <laughs> no I agree yeah I think this is another issue to talk about <laughs> on another day in detail but the terminology I think in the language is important because we now have trials um, recruiting of uh, of laryngeal masks affected, and and I would argue that's not minimally invasive either. But I think less is a better term. Um, but coming back to the follow up of the Optimist uh, A trial, which I think is really quite important because it's unusual for us to see follow up data being reported of early respiratory interventions in neonatology, um, and importantly that those interventions cover the breadth of the the organs you'd expect to be involved, rather than focusing purely on neurodevelopmental outcomes. The primary outcome of death or neuro dis, uh, neurodevelopmental disability at two years, I think, was it was could be argued to be a negative outcome because there was no difference. But I think we could turn that the other way, and and actually say it provides some reassurance on the safety of an intervention which does involve some engagement with with the baby as opposed to not giving surfactant using uh, the, the traditional methods. And historically, remembering at the time Optimus Day was being conducted minimally invasive surfactant was still novel. so um, And we were coming from the era of coin uh, where there was either intubation and surfactant or non-invasive ventilation and surfactant. And that, that is a really important point to remember because the preterm baby faces two challenges when they're born. One is they surfactant deficient. And the other is they need to avoid being intubated because of the risk of lung injury. And those two challenges blunt against each other. So minimally invasive surfactant tries to address those two core issues, which we face clinically as a as a, as a, as a, a challenge, which for the younger neonatologist wasn't a challenge. But for those of us who've been around a bit longer, it has been something we've, we've, we've struggled with for a long time. Probably more importantly, though, is the secondary outcomes of respiratory health. We feel that that is important because, and also not surprising, there is a rationale to say, well, we wouldn't expect there to be a neurodevelopmental disability difference in, in a group of babies that have one brief intervention uh, a few hours after they're born. But that intervention is designed to deliver a drug which is, we know will change the way the lung behaves, not just at a mechanical level, but at a, at a molecular level too. So there's a very strong biological plausibility that if you blunt the inflammatory events that are occurring in the preterm lung shortly after it's born by using surfactant, you will expect there'll be a propagation of that benefit occurring on a breath-by-breath, week-by-week, day-by-day basis. So I think it's really important that we saw a respiratory uh, difference in this group of babies um, because it it provides some reassurance that these early therapies we're giving to babies may actually have a long term benefit. And we really haven't focused well on that in neonatology when it comes to respiratory interventions. We've stuck it out to BPD, and then magically the babies go home, and we kind of hope that the intervention may or may not have an influence on them later. And we're now more aware that respiratory outcomes later in life are probably more important than the diagnosis of BPD itself. So, in a bigger setting, this provides us some time to consider how we think about measuring the respiratory outcomes of babies after they've been in the NICU. And that was one of the things we discussed a little bit in our commentary. And I think we could probably discuss this a bit more in detail as a group. The other issue we really focused on in the commentary was the concept of how they followed up this group of babies. And that requires some time. To discuss as well, because the follow-up process here was quite complicated. It was multi-layered and the follow-up rates were high. And the challenges we've often faced in these trials is how do we get high follow-up rates to make the outcomes of the trials meaningful, but also how to ensure that the follow-up is valid and uh, scientifically um, sound when you review those when you review that data so they were the main issues we focused in the commentary and i don't know ben and, and and daphne if you want to talk a bit more detail about them
1: yeah i think that the point you're bringing up is an important one i think uh of the 488 patients that were randomized the two-year follow-up outcome includes 485 of them which is staggering Yeah, I think, I think these are things that we, uh, we definitely want to talk about. My, my big question based on, on the things you've currently said and, and, uh, Kristen, Lucy, please feel free to take this as well if you're, if you would like. But do you think that what we found in the secondary outcomes of this trial are sufficient enough to maybe change the way we're doing things around the time of delivery or? is it just going to be uh, enlightening us a little bit about the importance of early proper respiratory physiology?
4: I think this trial in itself um, can't answer your first question, but it provides the vanguard for us to start considering how we can develop better functional measures for respiratory health that could be used to better understand these early life interventions. We have a black hole at the moment. So a baby leaves hospital and then we don't have good ways of measuring respiratory function in these children until they get to an age where they're compliant with standardized tests like pulmonary function tests. And that's six, seven, eight years, which is far too long for families. It's far too long for babies. It's far too long for clinicians and it's far too long for funding agencies for grants, which uh, creates the problem. Here we see I think, a really quite ingenious way to try to address that gap because families care less about the diagnosis of BPD than they do about what their child can do and what their family's life will be like. And Here, we've used a series of measures, which you can easily criticise because they're quite subjective, things like, have you been to hospital and so forth. But they are measures that a family can understand and I think a family can relate to. So they, I think this, this trial allows us, challenges us to, to question how we should be defining follow respiratory health in these children. And is BPD alone the fit that we all need?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're bringing up such an important point. How many times do we talk to parents about the diagnosis of BPD? And their first question is like, well, but practically, what does that mean? Like, is my kid just going to have like asthma? And it's true. BPD, (laughs) defining BPD is is... Is a pointless endeavor. And for parents, it's even more pointless if it doesn't tell me exactly what is that going to mean. Is my baby going to go home on oxygen or is my baby going to be able to run around at school? I think these are the outcomes that matter uh, most.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I love that they uh, included this kind of uh, parent uh, report of respiratory outcomes. I think it just gives us such a fuller picture, not only for a research perspective, but just for our own understanding of what life is like for these um, families when they go home. I also wonder, what do you think is the right way for us to pick the parent-reported measures? You know, this is still something we, we the team chose, right, to ask the parents. Um, and how do we better define um, what's important to families?
3: Uh, I would say it's a really good question. Uh, I think, obviously, the I would say that the main way to go about it would be to talk to the parents, both the parents that are going through, the you know the process of having a premature baby and what they think now of what will be important later, but obviously to go back and look at the babies who have been born premature and talk to the parents later in life and see, you know, what has impacted their quality of life and what did they find important in the first you know two, four, six, eight years of their child's life, um, and then develop a set of questions around that, and that might be a very wide capture. I think you could do that across a huge spectrum of parents and really get down to the nitty-gritty and to find some really good questions that are most important to parents. And as David said, that would probably look more at things that the parents really care more about rather than the definition of BPD and what we use at the moment.
4: I think what Lucy's saying is really important. Um, We have to be engaging with current I hate the term, but it's the term that's been used, consumers and co-designing our research. And this is a really hot topic across all of clinical research at the moment. There are a number of partnership priority setting partnerships that are being undertaken right now because I, I'm involved I'm in a few of them and I know that we're about to be reporting one on on the um, top 10 research questions for babies born less than 25 weeks. So there is a, a large body of work happening internationally looking at priority setting. And it, it's critical we do this. We have to have research outcomes that are meaningful to people. It will make for better science too. I think what you're getting to, Daphne, though, is are these the right questions? I think we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that these are reasonable questions They are also questions with a biological plausibility because they reflect a change in respiratory health and When you leave the NICU with BPD, you don't stop having BPD. You don't stop having a preterm lung. That preterm lung is going to be growing and changing for decades to come. So, And that lung will still be exposed or at risk to other inflammatory and and injury-based events. So if you're having repeated hospital admissions for RSV, you're likely to have a worse outcome. That second hit hypothesis, I think, holds true in the the preterm lung. Um, And then ultimately we will need functional measures that are validatable or at least can be used to validate these um, consumer-led methods. And, and that's where a gap uh, lies. There's different ways we can look at this and, and we're involved well, we're leading a big project here looking at trying to develop functional methods at one year of respiratory health using lung imaging. And I know there are other groups looking at this as well.
0: I love that. I think that will give us a much better perspective about what, you know, what is important to, to families. Um, I did have one question that relates to so much of what you guys have been talking about, about how even the, the control group receives surfactant. And I wonder if you feel like the outcomes really are more dependent on the less invasive administration or the fact that babies got earlier exposure to, Surfactant.
2: I think this is really hard to pick apart in this um, trial. Ben and I were actually discussing this um, before we started recording. Um, And is the initial Optimus trial really a trial of minimally invasive surfactant therapy, or is it that earlier administration of surfactant at a lower threshold? of FIO2 in comparison to the other um, trials that had been done previously. And I actually found it really tricky to pick that apart. And I think my sense is that it's probably more the earlier administration of surfactant as opposed to the mechanism of delivery, particularly given that surfactant was also received in the control group.
0: And then I, you know, my last question is really, so where do we go next? What what are the things we still have to learn about surfactant and the way we give it?
2: I actually think one one of the things that I think is really interesting and is something that's come up clinically very recently is that actually the interfaces for which we are delivering non-invasive ventilation have changed since since the Optimus trial. So, if you look at the videos of MIST online, it is with the Hudson prongs, which are a much lower profile. Um, and I know that a lot of my colleagues, um, particularly as juniors, we don't get a lot of intubation practice. Um, we don't get to do a lot of direct laryngoscopy. And we now have, um, in a, definitely in Australia, a midline interface, which makes this a lot more difficult. And I think clinically, we're finding that we are delivering MIST but potentially at times not with the continuation of non-invasive respiratory support because of the difficulties of those interfaces. So I actually think there's been an evolution in practice since the trial that we need to face and something from my practice um, that I think needs to be addressed. The other thing I think is obviously
3: that the initial optimist trial only looked at 25 plus zero weeks and up. And I think now the population in neonatology is changing and becoming more premature, I guess, and mist is getting extrapolated into this population in some environments as well. So I think it would be interesting to see you know this minimally invasive surfactant and how things have changed in the even more extreme preterm population um, and seeing if those kinds of results extrapolate into the same population because even when you went into these papers and you stratified it by varied gestations we saw that the benefit it missed was at the older gestation not at the younger one so it'd be interesting to look at that side of things
4: can i be controversial Please (laughs) say a few things.
3: Better you than
0: us.
4: (laughs) This will not surprise Kristen and Lucy. I'm going to say, I'm going to suggest some things which are not controversial and some of that, but I think really Lucy's pointed out a very important concept there that all of the, surfactant's not a new drug. It's not a new agent. How we deliver surfactant is not a new concept. We're trying to refine it or discuss it, and we have been doing so ever since I was a neonatal trainee. But we have to remember that those trials were in babies who were uh, not born at the extremes of our prematurity, and that's really important. Most of the evidence we have does not relate to those extremely preterm babies. We need to almost go back to the drawing board and start again, I think, with that proof so we understand the evidence is correct. I don't think that's the controversial thing. I think some of the things we need to think about, I'm I'm less interested in the way the device we give it with. They're all less invasive. And I think to a certain extent, unless I can be convinced that one piece of plastic to deliver surfactant is different than another one, then in terms of how it delivers the surfactant safely and uh, effectively into the lungs, then I think the solution to how we give it is actually going to depend on the operators and the system you work in. There's clearly going to be environments where people are going to be better at using laryngoscopy and there will be environments where people are probably better at using uh, LMAs. And they should be factors that we think about, and I don't think we consider that when we look at evidence around the implementation. I'm also old enough to know that there are. There was back in the day, there was discussions around different types of surfactant. I think we still haven't yet worked out. We're using biological agents. Um, the the discussion around non biological surfactants, sort of artificial constructed surfactants, is still ongoing. I think it's sort of not going far, but it's still ongoing. The other thing that comes to my mind, and this is my second controversial potential point, is we've spent a lot of time talking about when we give surfactant. Maybe we should be talking about who we give surfactant to and refining. And maybe the answer is not to dichotomize babies into large groups for this drug, but to say we now have different times we can give surfactant. We have different Concepts around why we're giving it, whether it's prophylactic or rescue, and we have different ways that we could give it. I think acknowledging that less invasive surfactant is clearly the way to go compared to invasive, but we need to think about which baby is going to fit for the different permutations of those options. So it comes down to understanding the phenotype um, of the baby we're giving surfactant to. And the last thing, which Lucy didn't mention, because it's something I know she's been thinking about, is are there other ways we can make the delivery of surfactant more efficient? We're talking about how we get it into the lung, but we also need to start thinking about where it goes when it gets into the lung. So we've talked about the delivery device. We've not talked about whether how the lung is behaving at that time. So would it be um, beneficial to have the lung recruited, de-recruited, use a higher PEEP, a lower PEEP. We've seen the INREC-SHORE paper that was published a few years ago that raises that question as well. So I think there's still quite a lot to know.
0: What I hear you saying is that we, why we would like uh, a protocol that fits every single baby, that, that that's not going to be the case, that different babies need different things. Um, and I love that you um, have actually given us a lot to think about. More more questions for the, the community uh, to work on. Um, we've really appreciated uh, your expertise. Kristen, Lucy, David, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Okay. We are back and this was um very pleasant to have the eBinio team. Uh, it was kind of a hard ebino uh segment to schedule with our team all the way across the world, but uh we make it happen and we're always so excited anyway, to have it was worth it. It was totally That's exactly worth right. It. <laughs> so before the break, we talked about this article from the NICHD that compared uh donor breast milk with preterm formula. And I think one of the big questions that came out of this paper were obviously all the outcomes could be put on the on trial because of the fact that fortification was not really looked at it was only the base diet and you could say well what if all these what about the incidence of neck and the fact that it had doubled could it have been due to the fact that they were fortifying differently that's a question i had that's a question i've seen people asking and so it's interesting that in the lancet there's a paper that might help us answer this question and it's called effect of human milk-based fortification in extremely preterm infants fed exclusively with breast milk, a randomized control trial. First author is Gorg Bach Jensen, and it's uh, a study that's coming to us out of Sweden. Now they conducted uh, the Nordic study on human milk fortification in extremely preterm infants, which basically aimed to look at the effect of human milk nutrient fortifiers on neck, sepsis, and mortality as a composite measure of severe outcome in extremely preterm infants that were fed exclusively with breast milk in a setting where individualized target fortification was used. This is the N-forte Trial which was investigator-initiated, prospective, multi-center, randomized, uh, a, a controlled, a randomized, controlled superiority trial. The infants were enrolled from seven level three NICUs in Sweden. And the eligibility criteria were that you had to be 22 to 27 in six weeks of gestation. You had to have survived the first three, day, three days. The home clinic of the infant had the logistic of maintaining the study intervention. In Europe, we do call hospital-slash-medical centers clinic. So they were not in an outpatient clinic, but this was an inpatient center, obviously. The, they had to be able to continue the intervention until 34 weeks. And they wanted, because it was fortification, they included babies once they had reached about hundred ml per kilo per day of feeds. They excluded babies for all sorts of reasons, GI mal- malformation, chromosomal anomalies, and an interesting one, which was feeding intolerance. And I was like, what the heck do they mean by feeding intolerance? Like, I feel like every baby has feeding intolerance at some mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. So how do you not exclude everybody? Does
0: it feel like it's getting worse not better, feeding intolerance? <laughs> That's right. We'll come back.
1: But... Uh, I looked back and basically what they meant by that was that um, they were looking at how long it took them to reach full feeds. So if they were really lagging behind and it and expect- ended up not being an issue where um, babies ten- ten were mo- more likely to reach um, um, full feeds with uh, within 10 days of uh, starting enteral feeds. So they were assigned one-to-one to receive either human milk fortifier or bovine uh, milk-based fortifier, um, once the feeds had reached 100 ml per kilo per day. Now, what what they did is that they did analyze the breast milk using the Myris uh, analyzer. And so, the macronutrients analysis of the mother's own milk were performed weekly, and the breast milk analysis uh, of the donor milk as well was performed for each batch that they received. So, The primary outcome was a composite of neck stage two to three, culture-proven sepsis and mortality during the study period from the inclusion to discharge no longer than 44 weeks corrected. And I was like, that's a peculiar outcome. I've never really seen, I've seen measures of outcome of mortality, I've seen neck, but neck, sepsis, or mortality... Felt a little bit bizarre. And I think if you're reading the literature, you always have to ask yourself, what is the outcome and why did they pick this outcome? Because then it's more difficult to then tease it apart. If you say, no, I'm just going to look at their rates of neck, then you can look at that, but it's not what they were powered for. That's not what they intended to study. So they power their study for this sort of triple outcome. And interestingly enough, in the discussion, so I'm jumping a little bit here, but they did mention why they picked this. So they said, we chose a composite of neck culture-proven sepsis and death as the primary endpoint, the rational being that neck and sepsis share many pathogenic mechanisms, and that the diagnosis of neck and sepsis is often a continuum, and that with previous results indicating a positive effect from the human milk-based fortifier on both neck and sepsis, um, they thought they could put all these things together. Something you mentioned when we were talking earlier about the outcome of neck, that neck, mortality, all these things are related. Um, And then they said, obviously, mortality constitutes an intrinsic censoring effect in infants at high risk of developing severe sepsis or neck. Now, their trial did not have the power to study neck as a separate outcome. So you cannot take technically the data, from the data from this trial and go counsel families on what is the effect on neck specifically. And the reason for that is because, as we'll see, the incidence of neck is quite low. Um, their neck incidence rate of about 7%. They said that if they wanted to show a reduction of 50% in neck rate with 80% power, they would have needed a sample size of about like 1,200 infants, which is obviously huge. And they didn't have that. So they couldn't power for neck specifically. So I thought this was sort of like the methodology pause or uh, a tidbit of of the week. So 228 infants were included in this intention to treat analysis trial. No significant difference between uh, the babies and the mothers uh, at baseline. What about the primary outcome? So the composite of neck, sepsis, and mortality did not significantly differ between the two treatment groups. Um, of the 115 infants assigned to human milk-based fortifier, 35% fulfilled the criteria for either NEC2-3, culture-proven sepsis, or death, compared to 34.5% in the infants that were assigned the bovine milk fortifier. This applied both to the primary outcome and when testing for the intrinsic variables of nec 2 culture-proven sepsis and mortality separately. So even though we just said they were not powered for it, when they did look at it, there was no significant difference in any of the individual components. There were no significant um, unadjusted differences in the secondary outcomes, such as mortality, neck, sepsis, moderate to severe BPD, ROP, severe ROP, mortality and morbidity index, the number of days in the ICU, or the postmenstrual a- uh, weight at discharge. Neither were there any significant differences in the measure of feeding intolerance with an equal median time of 10 days to reach full enteral feeds in both groups. And so in summary, they showed that supplementation with human milk-based fortifiers compared to bovine did not reduce the combined incidence of neck sepsis or mortality in extremely preterm infants exclusively fed breast milk. Based on this um, and the previous, um, they say, lack of evidence together with the economical concerns with human milk-based fortifier, we find uh, no evidence to support the routine use of human milk-based fortifier as a nutritional strategy to prevent neck sepsis or death in extremely preterm infants who are fed their mother's own milk. Mind you, here see how they have to say that they cannot support for prevention of next sepsis or death. So, if you're trying to prevent next sepsis or death, then maybe you can you can uh, you can use that. But um, it's I think it's a very the Lancet has always very heavy worded conclusions. But take that with a grain of salt. So we're here to present to you the information, and you do with that what you wish.
0: <laughs> so you'll have everybody take a look. Yes, yeah, what please. you're saying. <laughs> Okay, very interesting. Thank you. All right, I have one for you, a little um, off the beaten path for us, but um, I thought it was interesting. Neonatal outcomes after COVID-19 vaccination and pregnancy lead author Mike uh, Mikhail Norman. This is coming out of JAMA. And I think lots of people have concerns about vaccination in pregnancy. So I thought it was an interesting study. So the question was, does exposure to the mRNA COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy increase the risk of adverse events in newborn infants? So this is a population-based cohort study from um, Sweden and Norway. And basically, they were looking for um, infants born between June 2021 and January 2023. And then they, they had two groups, one who uh, was exposed to the vaccine during pregnancy and um, a group who was not. So they included all live births at 22 weeks or more gestation, including those infants with birth defects. That's something they wanted to look at. The study included 94,000 infants exposed to COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy and 102,000 control infants. They basically looked, uh, did uh, this controlling measure to find these control infants that were not exposed uh, to vaccination. Exclusion criteria were basically that they couldn't the, the babies didn't have the right charts. Um, they weren't matched to the, to the mother, um, or that they got a non mRNA vaccine during pregnancy. So after exclusions, 97.4% of all live births in Sweden and 98.6% of all live births in Norway were included. I think that was pretty good. (laughs) Um, So they looked at the country of origin as well as timing of vaccination, like during what trimester, um, and examined a plethora of covariates and neonatal outcomes, like a lot of them. So I'm not gonna, I won't belabor those, but I will tell you what they found. All outcomes were assessed for at at least the first four weeks of life, um, and then some follow-up for some of the morbidity outcomes exceeded four weeks, depending on the length of the uh, neonatal hospitalization. I'm going to name a few of the outcomes because I think they're of interest in kind of these vaccine-related complications. So they wanted to look specifically at coagulation disorders, thrombosis, bleeding, uh, IVH in neonates, immune reactions like allergic reactions, Guillain-Barre type syndromes, and inflammation. So specifically this question about myocarditis, pericarditis, and then reports of death. So 48% were exposed to vaccination against COVID-19 during pregnancy with obviously a variety of doses. So 50.4 of those who were exposed to vaccination uh, saw one dose, 45.9 saw two doses, and 3.7 saw three doses of mRNA vaccine. The percentage of infants uh, whose childbearing parent had not been vaccinated prior to pregnancy so, right, some of them were exposed during pregnancy and some of them were not exposed during pregnancy, but their birthing parent may also may or may not have received a vaccine prior to pregnancy. So that's what this data point, uh, and they were similar, um, 50.8% in the exposed group and 49% in the unexposed group. Most infants, 78.6, were exposed to the Corbinati or the Pfizer vaccine and the remainder to um, mRNA-1273, which is a Moderna vaccine. And in total, 32% of infants were exposed during the first trimester, 43% during the second trimester, and 24% during the third trimester. Interestingly, uh, about the birthing parent, individuals vaccinated during pregnancy were older. They were more often nulliparous and of Nordic origin. They had longer education, conceived earlier in the study period, and had more, so those are all... Good potentially protective factors, Um, but they had more pre-pregnancy comorbidity, but less gestational diabetes than individuals unvaccinated in pregnancy. So all of those were statistically significant. Infants exposed to the vaccine during pregnancy compared with those who were not were less likely to be preterm. They were less likely to be uh, small for gestational age, and they were less likely to have an APGAR score less than 7, 1.6 versus 1.8 percent, or less than 4, 0.26 versus 0.34 at five minutes. And then um, in the meta-analysis of both countries, vaccination during pregnancy was associated with lower odds of neonatal non-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage and overall neonatal mortality. Vaccination, go ahead. That's interesting, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. So they were looking to see would they have more adverse events? And in reality, they had less adverse events.
1: But the brain brain bleed one is something, it's a bit like, could it just be a pure luck, an association that was fine by luck? Because this is not something I would have expected the vaccine to have any effect on.
0: Yeah, why? Right, they were, right. Why would it reduce bleeding? Yeah, the event rate just for... For full transparency, 1.7 versus 3.2 of a thousand live births, and adjusted odds ratio of 0.78. Um, neonatal mortality, 0.9 versus 1.8 of a thousand live births, and adjusted odds ratio of 0.68. Um, and in addition, vaccination in the second trimester, because remember they they. Um, uh, looked at it, depending on which trimester it was received, also it was associated with reduced odds of cerebral ischemia and hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, 1.8 versus 2.7 out of 1,000 births, and adjusted odd ratio of 0.73. Other neonatal outcomes did not differ significantly between the two groups, including they were highlighting no cases of neonatal myocarditis in infants exposed to the vaccine.
1: This is interesting. This is a good paper to come out. My, my wife and I were talking about this because in in our um, area in Broward County, there's now more cases of measles, and and we were talking about the fact that like there's really uh, people have forgotten what vaccines were intended to do. Uh, we were talking about the kind of pathologies
0: and how good they were at doing
1: it. Of course, but I, but more importantly, I think what's something that we discussed on one of our episodes with Perry Class, where you forgot those pathologies what they were doing uh, we forget that people were in tears when the polio vaccine was in was rolled out like these are a disease that will kill children so i think it's it's interesting so i think um any concrete data that can be published that supports the use of of, pr- of preventive medicine like a vaccine is good and um and we still don't i think if what we know is that it can prevent this this pathology, that's kind of nice, especially considering we still don't know everything we would like to know about COVID nineteen. <laughs> so, um, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, right? I mean those those studies are underway of the fallout from COVID nineteen.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I had some more papers, but I think we're going to call it a day. We um, are. Yeah, we. It was a great journal club. And I don't want to. These are good studies that I don't want to uh, go through quickly. Um, so we'll save them. I'll save them for next time. I say this, but one of these papers is another one that I was saving from last week for from this last time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, fingers crossed, we will get to them next week. Um, but no, this was a uh, this was a phenomenal journal club. I think the articles were all super super interesting. Is there anything you want to go over before we we head out? Or do you? Th- I mean, I don't. It's not because I don't have anything that you. uh you should also
0: uh... um I did have kind of a neo news Segment.
1: Go ahead. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, obviously, our neo news, we want to just keep uh, up to date with stuff that's going on in the community. Um, I think it's just useful to know that the the CDC just put out this brief uh, this month uh, about the trends um, in maternal syphilis rates during pregnancy because they are skyrocketing. So I, I won't spend too much time on this, but you can find all the data on the cdc.gov website, obviously. But In general, the overall rate of syphilis in mothers giving birth in the United States um, has more than tripled from 2016 to 2022, rising from 87.2 to 280.4 per 100,000 lives births. Uh, This, it's crazy. And the syphilis rate increased for all maternal race uh, and uh, Hispanic origin groups. So the largest increase was for American Indian and Alaskan uh, Native non-Hispanic mothers. The syphilis rate has increased for all maternal age groups uh, with the largest increase for mothers younger than age 20. It also, uh, the syphilis rate increased for all prenatal care cat categories. So that means basically how much prenatal care did you get during your pregnancy? So the rate has increased the most for those uh, birthing parents who did not get any prenatal care, but even those who are receiving care from the first trimester, um, we've seen staggering increase and syphilis rates uh, the only thing uh, else I will mention that the rate of maternal syphilis has increased in forty eight out of the fifty one reporting areas that's forty seven states and the District of Columbia and rose by more than four hundred percent for six states of note New Mexico, Colorado, Mississippi, South Dakota, Montana, and Alaska so
1: this is where uh, access to I mean when you think that the treatment for syphilis is literally just Penicillin, Yeah, <laughs> this is where you just hope that uh, our limitations, especially in our country of accessing healthcare, don't impact people receiving literally penicillin, which... Uh,
0: yeah, and uh, in particular right now, uh, the access to... Obstetric care in this country is is becoming more and more siloed, limited. We just we were discussing
1: this with um, our advocacy uh, folks uh, last year. I think it was talking about how the exemptions that took place during the COVID nineteen um, pandemic really helped foster sort of the the care that m- expectant mothers were receiving. Where for many, that's the only time they actually get a full evaluation, um, because. Otherwise, they don't have access to healthcare and and only in the context of pregnancy are some of these things reimbursed. So no, very interesting.
0: I just thought people shouldn't wait two more weeks to know that.
1: So. <laughs> very good. Uh, keep reaching out to us on social media or by email if you want to feature anything. We'll have more newsy type of segments on journal clubs where we feature not just neonatal news, but people doing good things. I was just talking to someone on Instagram who um, does great work for neonatal nurse education and um so we'll try to bring these people on um during journal club for like five minutes to to talk about what they're doing to advance access to evidence-based practices which is directly in line with what we're doing on journal club so yeah feel free to reach out and uh we'll try to accommodate everybody the incubator is as busy as it's ever been um but still we always have room for um sharing more evidence so with that being said have a good rest of your sunday guys and uh, we will see you next time Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICU podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner.
3: Thank you.